if Protestant Kenny was sitting here saying, how dare you pray to, you know, or ask the saints in heaven to pray for you? They're dead. Catholic Kenny would say, no, they're not. <laughs> I would say, uh, dear Protestant Kenny, that uh, you pride yourself on being a biblical guy. Why are you responding so unbiblically? Uh, what do you mean, Catholic Kenny? Well, the Bible says, here, let me put on my Billy Graham voice for a minute. The Bible says <laughs> in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Where are the saints? They're at home with the Lord. Hello and welcome to just another super duper episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken and Kenny. I'm Matt Swaim and uh, we encourage you to check out all the kinds of things that we do, the fun stuff that's a part of our work here at the Coming Home Network. Go to chnetwork.org for all of that. Uh, we're a community of people who are in various stages, uh, many, some just exploring the very beginnings of the Catholic faith. Some of them, like Ken and Kenny and myself, actually became Catholic. And if you want to join conversation with so folks like that, then definitely head into our online community, which is community.chnetwork.org. If you want to make sure that everything that we can give people that's just make sure that everything's free that we're able to give is 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 able to be <laughs> given for free. You know what I mean by this. chnetwork.org slash donate if you want to support our work, because the gospel should be free, man. And uh, some things cost money, and like this camera and this microphone. True. But Ken Hensley. Kenny Burchard, how hey. are you, gentlemen, today? Great, so great. It's great to be back, right? We've been on it a break. It is great to bit be of back. A break. Yeah, yeah, we've been out a for time. a little bit. Um, and when and we, you sound like you, you, you seem like you haven't fully recovered. <laughs> I haven't fully recovered. I've been hit by a hit by a, a train. You know, all the captives in the train hit me as they went by. So, yeah. Um, the, we went through all the myriad dogmas. That was the last section of this. Yeah on the journey project and yes, yes. we left a lot of things uncovered in the merry conversation and uh, just to remind people ken you were a baptist pastor kenny you were a foursquare pastor i was a wesleyan guy layperson um and mm -hmm. we all kind of came from our own different spaces to to reckon with a lot of this stuff but even if you've reckoned with all the doctrine and the theology what we're going to talk about today is often still a big barrier and that's the idea of of praying with mary the communion of saints and all that um we're going to talk about mary as an intercessor and we're going to focus on her more specifically but you can't really have that conversation until you have the conversation about the communion of saints in general and how, how that all works so kenny and ken uh i don't know who wants to go first but talk about how you thought of this whole question the idea of praying to saints before you mm -hmm. became Catholic back when you were Protestant pastors. I was telling Ken earlier, the first time that I have this ever really came on my radar was about three years after I became a Christian. I was in the Navy and I started dating this Catholic girl, uh, dated her for a little while. And she, her mom invited me to go to the church, to a little, to a little chapel. 
and pray the rosary with with a few people at the <laughs> church. And I thought, okay, sure, pray, I'll, I'll go. And this was so new to me. So I was sitting there as a, you know, as a 19-year-old, very young Christian, and we kept doing this thing on the rosary where we would say, you know, after each of the Hail Mary prayers, we would say, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. And just as a very new Christian without much familiarity with this topic at all, I just thought, I, I remember thinking, is this okay? <laughs> is this okay? <laughs> I, I don't know if we're supposed to yeah. say these things, you know? And I, it just, so and really early on, it was it was uncomfortable for me because I didn't have a foundation for it. And then, you know, as I've shared many times, I learned my anti-Catholicism from the circles I was running in, and I kind of developed an anti uh, theology mm-hmm. to to this idea of the the communion of the saints as it's understood in Catholic theology and the corresponding practice of including the saints in our prayers. I was just against it. I taught against it, and I used some of the texts that we're going to look at today as these sort of push away texts to the idea. So mm-hmm. yeah, I, I was not in favor of it for many years of my own walk with Jesus not, before Catholic. Uh, it, not in favor. That's a good way to, to sort of sum it, it up. I'm not, I'm not in, in favor. favor. <laughs> I was not in favor. Like, I vote no. <laughs> my, my sentiments regarding this were pretty much the same as those of the Protestant reformers and then the Puritans, who I won't go into, but j- just a couple of quotations. Here's John Calvin on the subject, okay, right? Since the scripture calls us away from all others to Christ alone, since our Heavenly Father is pleased to gather all things together in Him, it were the extreme of stupidity, not to say madness, to attempt to attain access by means of others, so as to be drawn away from him. And then one more. Here's the English reformer Thomas Cranmer. This is how he put it. Quote, the Romish doctrine concerning the invocation of saints is a fond thing, repugnant to the word of God. Yeah, that's pretty much it in a nutshell. Matt. Yeah. That's how I thought. I think my experience was pretty similar to all of yours. Um, I mean, I remember we had uh, as a Nazarene Bible quiz team when I was in high school. Uh, actually, this was in late middle school. Uh, we would get our Bible quiz t-shirt theme for the year, and this would be the t- Christian t-shirt that you'd wear to all the Bible quizzes. And we had a Bible quiz t-shirt one year, and it was uh, one by one, and it was sort of this white fleck paint picture of Jesus with like so this teal lettering, one by one, W-O-N by O-N-E. And on the mm-hmm. back, it had a verse we're going to get into a lot more here in a little bit, which is First Timothy <laughs> two five. It says, there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, full stop, the end. And that was my, that was my whole perspective on it. I didn't even... I mean, I think I had some stuff uh, connected with people communicating with mm-hmm. those that had come beyond, but I had this weird mix of misunderstandings. I think I had some Day of the Dead mixed in with necromancy, mixed in with right. all kinds of weird things. Uh, so I don't think I even really had a concept of what Catholics yeah. were about yeah. in regard to this. So I guess the next question is, and we'll start with you, Ken, like how did some of this begin to change for you? Okay, well, uh, you know, I, I want to set this into a context because as I began to study the Catholic faith, you guys, uh, a particular pattern began to emerge in my life, and that is that I would take some Catholic belief or some Catholic practice that as a Protestant, and ju- just looking at it superficially and from the outside, just seemed bizarre or insane. And then when I would begin to actually study it 
and come to know what is really being said, what's really being done, I would find that not only would it become something that seemed rational to me, seemed reasonable, but would actually become quite beautiful and biblical. And this whole thing of the intercession of the saints was one of those. And let me give the kind of tell the story just briefly, theologically. According to St. Paul, all of those who are united to Christ in baptism and faith are intimately united to one another as members of Christ's mystical body. As St. Paul says, for just as in one, just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, we were all made to drink of the same Spirit. And so, and I believed this as an evangelical, as a Protestant, after the resurrection, we see our Lord Jesus ascending to heaven seated at the right hand of the Father, and he pours forth the Holy Spirit into the church, which becomes, if you will, an extension of the incarnation in the world. We become Jesus, you know, we would sing songs, we are his hands, we are his voice, we are his feet. We become Jesus in the world, serving one another as ministers of Christ. So I pray for you, you pray for me. This is just common stuff. I teach you, you teach me, I serve you, you serve me. Now, uh, as an evangelical, and I'm, I'm sure you two will relate to this, we talked all the time about the fact that, that, that what we wanted in our lives was to be like Jesus. Uh, we wanted to think what Jesus thought. We wanted to say what he would say. We wanted to do what he would do. We wanted to be united with him, thinking, doing, saying, being what he thinks, uh, says, does, and, and is. Okay? Okay, here's a verse. Hebrews 7.25. It tells us that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. And this is the passage that began to break me down, and this is why. I suddenly imagined, and this is anthropomorphic description I'm giving here, okay? But I suddenly imagined Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, and he ever lives to make intercession for us. So here's Jesus on his knees before the Father, completely devoted to bringing our needs to the Father, in other words, until his entire family is home with him, he is not uh, resting. He's interceding. He's on his knees. And then I tried to th then I tried to imagine, well, if we're united to him, and we want to be doing what he does, and we want to be saying and thinking what he says and he thinks, does it make any sense at all to think that while Jesus is on his knees interceding, you know, you, Matt, and you know, Kenny, and me, you know imagining us up in heaven later on, or, you know, laying around in a hammock, you know, we're strumming on our guitars, we're, we're sipping, you know, celestial lemonade or something. It, it, and suddenly it, it, it hit me, and this is sort of the bottom line for me that broke me into the whole thing of the communion of saints and the intercession of the saints. Suddenly, not only did it seem reasonable and biblical, it seemed absurd to me to think that Jesus would be the only one in heaven looking down on those of us struggling through the wilderness of this world and praying for us. He's the only one. Everyone else is just off, you know, goofing around, having fun, or just in some kind of zombie stare, you know, like a, you know, uh, looking at God or something. So that's how it began to happen for me. How about you, yeah. Kenny? Well, I was going to say just one little thing to add to that. You mentioned the zombie stare. Uh, some people call it like the soul sleep. Um, I think one of the turning points for me in this discussion was, you know, I had heard some people talk about like this, the soul sleep that happens, you know, in, in between death and, 
and the uh, the end of all things. And I realized the only people that teach that are people like Jehovah's Witnesses. The only people who teach it like formally, <laughs> right? This is like Christians don't actually hold that. So yeah, um, Kenny, you were gonna go. Yeah, I I think that uh, you know what you've both shared is helpful, and um, for for me, I started letting down my guard about this. I would say when I was in seminary, and that, and I've said before that in seminary I, I started letting down my guard about lots of things. This was one of them, and it happened that you know in in my particular course of study, which is New Testament, I had to study each of the books of the Bible, you know, one by one in their original setting and language and etc. I think I've said this before that my favorite course in seminary in terms of book studies was the Book of Revelation, and it was in that class that I began to to drop my guard with respect to this idea of this link between heaven and earth, the saints in heaven, the saints on earth, and even their capacity in heaven to pray for us. And we're going to unpack some of those texts today. But the first word in the book of Revelation, in the, in the Greek text, is was actually a help to me. It was like a, whoa, wait a minute, just the first word, which is apocalypsis. And those listening can hear an, an anglicized word in there, apocalypse. But that's the first word of the book of Revelation. It's apocalypsis, and it means unveiling or without a veil or to take a veil or a screen or a barrier out of the way so that you can see. In fact, it says apocalypsis to Jesu Christu, in Greek, a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so there's an unveiling that happens in the book of Revelation of Jesus, but then as you read the text, there's an unveiling of the activity, a, a, an opening, as it were, of the windows of heaven, so that we can see what's happening in the heavenly throne room and the heavenly realm. And what I discovered when I looked more closely at the book of Revelation and the theme of heaven and earth, which we're going to unpack a lot more, is that there is a link, an inseparable link, between the church in heaven and the church on earth. So that's that's sort of a textual uh, letting down my guard. Then I went on an ecclesial journey, as it were, of saying, okay, is there a church that takes seriously this link between the heaven and earth church and in its praxis, in the way that it sort of does things, in its spiritual life? Is there a church that takes seriously and robustly this relationship between the heaven and earth church? And of course, you know, I'm sitting here today because my answer is, yeah, the, the Catholic church does that. And so we can unpack it together. But it was the book of Revelation that helped me to see this, this linking. There's a lot in the book of Revelation that we can get into as we go yeah. on. Um, yeah. It really gets actually fairly explicit about some of yes, this stuff, but in ways that would have been completely invisible, I think, to to us because we're not already already thinking that 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 way about it. But I want to talk about my Bible quiz and T-shirt, right? Uh, and I'm, I have actually because I, everything I memorized in Bible quizzing, I mentioned I, I, I memorized in the 1984 mm -hmm. edition of the New International Version. So I'll just read because I'm pretty sure that's the translation it was uh, on my shirt. Everything was 1984 NIV in my world at that time, in the late 80s, early 90s. But here's what it says in 1 Timothy 2.5. It says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Now, we could go into 
other verses because Paul's sentence doesn't actually end there in my text. But the thought that is often brought up as an objection to the Catholic teaching often does end there, uh, and that's the section of the verse that's that's paraded out to say, listen, one one God, one mediator between God and men, don't bring in St. Francis and St. Patrick and all these other people, Mary and everybody else. You're, you're crowding the room. You're blocking the channel. One God, one mediator. Kenny, how would you respond? Yeah, I actually have a friend who happens to be the, the principal or president of a, of a biblical seminary in England, a dear friend of mine, an Anglican scholar who was going through something, and he's, he was sharing it with me. And I said, I'll pray, and, and I'll also ask for the intercession of Mary for you. And he said, one mediator, mate, or something. I can't do a very good British accent. But he said, <laughs> one mediator, mate. And and so, But the, the first thing I said to him, and that I would encourage any Catholic to say if a non-Catholic says one mediator, is just say amen. Right? Like, how could I disagree with that, that there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus? That's a biblical verse. We accept it as Catholics. The catechism teaches very explicitly that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, because that's what the Bible teaches. But um, let me say two clarifying things about why using that word as a dismissal of what we're talking about is actually a mistake. Um, first, I would say, you know, maybe Catholics could update their lexicon a little bit when we say the word pray or prayer to the saints or prayer with the saints, etc. Because in Protestant parlance, that word just means talking to God. Catholics embrace the full semantic range, to use some nerdy language, with respect to the word pray. The word pray just means ask. A-S-K. That's mm -hmm. a synonym for the word pray. And it's used in archaic English for anyone asking yeah. a question. And so that's the first thing. Pray just means ask. So we're not meaning something else mm -hmm. by that when we say pray to the saints. We're saying ask the saints to pray for us. Um, I would say then the second thing is we are never asking Mary and the saints to die on the cross for our sins. <laughs> We're just asking them to pray for us. So my point on that one is that um, to confuse those things is is uh, um, the mistake of a biblical and theological conflation or confusion. We are not conflating or confusing salvific mediation, the mediation of the Son of God on behalf of humanity to die for our sins and save us and bring us to God. We're not confusing salvific mediation mm -hmm. with prayerful intercession, okay? To say there's one mediator as the response to ask Mary to pray for you is practically as nonsensical as responding that way when asking your pastor to pray for you or someone mm -hmm. suggesting mm -hmm. go and ask your pastor to pray for you. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, and that's the question... That's a question that I would ask too, is that basically I would just ask, look at if first Timothy two five, if this passage is teaching that Christ is our sole mediator, in the sense that invoking the prayers of the saints or anyone would somehow contradict his sole mediatorship, then why in the world does Saint Paul just five verses previous, why does he right. write this? First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made 
for all men. And, uh, you know, and it's, it's even simpler than that. The Bible is literally filled with examples of people interceding with God for others. Abraham interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah. Moses interceding for the Israelites, David interceding, Jeremiah, Daniel interceding. St. Paul prays for his people Israel. I'm thinking Romans 10 verse 1, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they be saved. Paul prays for the churches he has founded. Listen to Colossians chapter 1 beginning at verse 9. And so from the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding to lead a life worthy of the Lord. The, the entire Bible is filled with people praying for one another. And aren't we commanded, in fact, to pray for one another? I'm thinking of James chapter 5, but there, there are many verses. And so the bottom line is this, and this is kind of what you said, Kenny, but it's sort of said in another way. Our praying for one another Praying for one another, it is not a violation of Christ's soul mediatorship. You know, there's one God and Amen. one mediator between God and man. It's not a violation. In fact, I think it is an example of Christ's soul mediatorship in action through his mystical body, where he yes. is the head, organically connected to us. And when we pray for one another, this is his mediatorship being lived out in the world. This is what I meant by an extension of the incarnation. Or to use the Old Testament language, where God said that Israel would become a nation of priests, a mm. royal nation. And Peter picks that up too in First Peter chapter 2, that we are that now. The church is that now. And so here's the question that came to me, I guess, regarding asking those in heaven to pray for us. It would be, it would be something like this. During this life... I pray every day for those that I love. Pray for mm -hmm. my family. I pray for my children. I pray for my grandchildren. Does it even make sense to think that the moment I close my eyes and I open them in the realms of heaven, that I suddenly will stop? I won't care what they're doing and I won't pray for them anymore. Does it even make sense? So that's how I answer that objection, Matt. Hope yeah, you have better objections than that, Matt. <laughs> I, I'll come up with something more. It's not like also that there's some equivalent of like the men in black angels, right? When you get to heaven, you open your eyes and they flash that thingy in your, you know, your eyes mm -hmm. and you forget your entire earthly life and everyone that you loved, right? Uh -huh. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that you would yeah. no longer care about them. Uh, yeah, but and he, I, oh, go ahead. I, yeah, I was going to say, uh, Matt and Ken, before we move to the next point and, and, and teeing off of what Ken just said, you know, a phrase that I, I've used with people um, as I talk about our Catholic thinking here is heaven is about more, not less. When we're in heaven, mm -hmm. we're more concerned, more involved, more engaged, more passionate, yeah. more prayerful, more worshipful, more participatory in the saving mission of God. Not no longer incarcerated not by our sinful flesh than than we are right here. We are more involved in what Jesus mm -hmm. is doing in the world because we're in heaven, not the other way around. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and just to you know, kind of one more thought on this issue of First uh, Timothy two five. I think part of you know why this gets stuck as such a proof text verse is because of mm -hmm. where the verse break happens. Um, in the English translations of this chapter, because it says here, verse 5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. There's a comma there, 
not a period, right? <laughs> Verse 6 then begins, mm -hmm. who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. What kind of mediatorship is Paul talking about here? He's not talking about Christ as an intercessor in prayer when he's talking about mm -hmm. mediation. The, mm -hmm. That's not the kind of one mediator that Jesus is. Yeah. He's the one mediator right. who can die for your sins and it'll work. Yes. Right? That's the kind of mediation that Paul is actually talking about when he's saying this to Timothy. Right, right. Right. And right. Kenny made that distinction very well a few minutes ago. You know, no Catholic, when they go to pray to a saint in heaven, no one says, St. Paul, will you please die on the cross for my sins? It's no. like, it doesn't happen. Okay, go ahead, Matt. Or no, St. Paul, I am pr praying for you, for your help because you paid the one price that no one or other person. No, yeah. that's not how that's not how it works. But there is something key here, and that is that uh, Paul's dead. So uh, St. Patrick's dead. St. Francis dead. They're all dead. So <laughs> I, I mean. This is a this is an issue, right? This is an issue we got to deal with. This is an issue that would have been of of, of mm -hmm. concern to us. Uh, it's a, anytime somebody you know hits me with notes on the YouTube comments or in Twitter or whatever, that's like their first objection, right? These are dead people we're talking about. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's Kenny, one thing to ask people on Earth to pray, but it's, it's right? Thing they're dead. You, so, yeah, what, what yeah. are you doing? Go ahead. Yeah, I have a short response to that. <laughs> no, they're not. <laughs> So <laughs> if I hear, if I, you know, if Protestant Kenny was sitting here saying, how dare you pray to, you know, or ask the saints in heaven to pray for you, they're dead. Catholic Kenny would say, no, they're not. <laughs> I would say, uh, dear Protestant Kenny, that uh, you pride yourself on being a biblical guy. Why are you responding so unbiblically? Uh, what do you mean, Catholic Kenny? Well, the Bible says, here, let me put on my Billy Graham voice for a minute. The Bible says <laughs> in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Where are the saints? They're at home with the Lord. The Bible says in Philippians 1, 23, to depart this present life and be with Christ is far better. So what happens when we depart this present life? We're with Christ. Uh, Jesus said, <laughs> Mark chapter 12, 27, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Um, the Bible says, you know, in Matthew 17, 2 through 4, uh, there Jesus was transfigured before them, his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Now get this in verse 4. Peter said, Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter saw on the Mount of Transfiguration Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. If you tell St. Peter Moses and Elijah are dead, he'll say, no, they're not. I saw them talking to Jesus about his exodus on the Mount mm -hmm. of Transfiguration. They're alive. Uh, so my simple response to they are dead is, no, they're not. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> he's uh, yeah. not the God of the living. He is the God. I mean, he's the, he's the God of the living, not of the dead. Right? Exactly. This is, uh, this is fairly crucial yeah. stuff. Ken. Yeah. And I, I'll just add this because... 
people will say, well, you're talking to the dead, then you're getting into necromancy, you're doing something right. weird, this is sorcery, whatever. Well, um, Patrick Madrid has written a wonderful little book, and it's very short, and the title is Any Friend of God's is a Friend of Mine. And it's, it's his book on the communion of saints and the intercession of the saints. Here's how he addresses this objection, they're dead. Um, necromancy is the attempt to harness diabolical powers. It is gravely sinful and has been condemned by the Catholic Church since the time of the early fathers down to our own age. But this has nothing to do with our asking saints to pray for us. When a Christian asks the Blessed Virgin Mary or any other saint for prayer, he is not attempting to conjure up <laughs> you know, the spirit of that person. Nope. There is no effort made. There's not even the slightest thought. In other words, this is not like a Saul, you know, going to the witch of Endor and trying to summon up Samuel, you know, from the grave. Okay. There is no effort made, not even the slightest thought to do anything other than to ask for that person's intercession. He isn't calling up the dead. And besides, the saints aren't really dead at all. They're far more alive than we, than, than when, than we are on earth. So uh, that's my basic answer to um, the objection, but they're dead. Right. And, and I'm glad you made the distinction with Saul and the Witch of Endor and summoning Samuel. And of course, that's forbidden pretty strongly throughout the Mosaic Law. Yes, it is. You can't just, uh, you know, summon a dead person and do it. As a matter of fact, when Samuel is summoned by the Witch of Endor, what does he say? He basically yells at Saul <laughs> for having summoned yeah. him. Right. Yeah. yeah it's, a bad, um, it's a bad scene. <laughs> but there's a long, long distance between Saul doing that and what I'm saying when I say, St. Patrick, mm -hmm. pray for the people of Ireland, your people who you ministered to, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. That's that's a very different kind of thing. And on top of that, none of us Catholics, I don't know what it, what some people on the outside might think. I, I don't even remember what I used to think about what Catholics are doing when they're asking for the help of the saints. Mm -hmm. But it's not like we're like, okay, let's get some rocks in a circle and light some candles and see if we can get St. Patrick in here and see what he'd think about this. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's not how it works like right, at him all. Up. No, no. But that does bring up a question, um, because prior to the transfiguration, Peter's mm -hmm. not aware at all of Moses and Elijah and the, their current state. And so the temptation would be, mm -hmm. well, then may, maybe Moses and Elijah aren't aware of what's going on on this side of things. Um, so what do we do about this kind of question of, of the veil that there is between here and mm -hmm. the hereafter? Well, you know, uh, I love the fact that we're working through these objections in a systematic way because, you know, it, it the biggest one that I that I heard before and that I hear continue that I still hear continuously is but one mediator, you know, and I I think we've shown that it's it's easy to answer that there's it's no violation of the mediatorship of Christ to ask people to pray for us and therefore it wouldn't be to ask those in heaven and then you say yeah but they're dead and then we go you know but they're not they're not dead and we see these illustrations and so. Then comes that uh, the the objection you're raising now, but isn't there kind of an iron wall, you know, separating a veil, separating so that those in heaven don't know about us, don't know what we're doing, can't hear us, don't aren't aren't thinking about us? Well, actually, there are two places in the Book of Revelation passages that I I somehow <laughs> had never noticed before. There are two places where we actually read about the saints in heaven praying for suffering Christians on earth. I mean, this is explicit, and I want to read one of them for you. The first is in Revelation chapter 5, verses 6 through 9, where we read, And I looked, this is John speaking, 
And behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders, because he saw 24 elders surrounding the throne of God in heaven, stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came, then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and a golden bowl full of incense. Now, now here it is. A golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And when this was finally shown to me, it was, it was one of those aha, it was one of those brick to the forehead kinds of, kinds of moments, <laughs> because the context of the book of Revelation is the saints on earth, the Christians on earth suffering and dying martyrdom and crying out uh, from the ground, you know, who will, who will um, defend us, who will vindicate us. And here we have a picture in the book of Revelation of these 24 elders around the throne of God offering up incense which the author of, Re of Revelation, John, tells us are the prayers of the saints. I mean, he's explicitly saying that these 24 elders, they know the prayers that are being offered up on by the suffering saints on earth, and they are offering these up as incense before God. So yes. apparently, it simply isn't the case that there is this iron wall or this veil standing between us and them so that they don't know what we're doing and they can't hear our prayers. It's simply not true. In chapter 8, there's a similar passage, which I won't read, but those two passages were really big for me, Matt mm -hmm. and Kenny. Yeah, and I, and I would add a few to that, Ken. Those were helpful to me, too. Those were eye-opening passages to me, that here you have this heavenly um, saint, this heavenly being, this elder, carrying prayers from those on earth in, in an altar, mm -hmm. in an incense censer, and lifting those up to God, in a sense, helping mm -hmm. those prayers up into the throne of God. But a few more texts of Scripture can be helpful as well. One is in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, which the first part of that verse mentions this great cloud of witnesses. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, says the writer of Hebrews, after he mm -hmm. goes through the the Hall of Faith in chapter 11. Now, I have a relative, a Baptist pastor relative, seminary-educated Baptist pastor relative, who recently said to another relative who parroted it back to me, well, that's not what that verse, that verse doesn't mean that they witness us. All it means is that we witness them. And in, in a sense, there's sort of a Protestant reflex there. Uh, it doesn't mean this, it means this instead. And what he meant is, by virtue of our ability to read about it in the Bible, we get to witness their heroic faith. They can't mm -hmm. see what's going on with us. Mm -hmm. um, we witness their faithfulness. They don't witness anything happening to us. Well, actually, the teaching of the New Testament is that those who have gone to heaven before us do remember and witness uh, the earthly plight that they themselves participated in. The book of Revelation calls it the ordeal or the great tribulation. You know, they have come out of it. Mm -hmm. They're familiar with it even in heaven. And they're deeply concerned, as we find in the book of Revelation, that God do something about it. In fact, that's found in the book of Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. 
uh, the fifth seal. And it says in verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, okay, so this is in heaven, right? I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain, the dead (laughs) that we talked about earlier, because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice. Okay, there's a prayer of lament, all right, a lamentation. How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Verse 11, then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, Mm -hmm. their brothers and sisters were killed just as they had been. In other words, there was a link between heaven and earth, prayers from people in heaven on behalf of those on earth, and God himself saying, wait a little longer, there's still more to come. There's a deep awareness by virtue of their own participation and God himself talking with them about what's happening in the world. Uh, The scripture then unveils, if you will, the reality that the saints in heaven are aware of our present plight, and they're crying out to God about it. Just uh, two more verses, guys. One in Hebrews chapter 12, again, the 22nd through the 24th verse. Listen to this, okay? Get Get your mind in this heaven and earth scenery. It says in verse 22, Hebrews 12, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Who who are those? They're the saints. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of God. Of Abel. In other words, the writer of Hebrews wants us to know that we are a participant in this heavenly, mm-hmm. victorious church. And then finally, a Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, 16 to 18 says this. Whenever anyone turns to the Lord, okay, let me let me start over. Whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So from a biblical perspective, the idea that there's a veil that separates the saints from knowing what's happening with us, or us from knowing what's happening with them, is just patently unscriptural. Uh, The Bible is unveiling for us and teaching us that with God's help and the mediation of the Holy Spirit, there is a present awareness, not completely, but a present Mm -hmm. awareness to a degree that's happening both ways via the mediation of the Holy Spirit, not a medium but via the mediation, the joining together by the Spirit of the heaven and earth church. It's one church, right? Uh, And we're going to get into some more aspects of this, but two quick Mm -hmm. other Bible thingies before we move on to the next particular topic. Uh, You know, you mentioned that 
you know, you had received the objection that they witnessed to us, right, by their their example on their testimony, um, right? Uh, and that would work well if the text of Hebrews 12.1 was, since we have this written and oral record of the powerful stories of these people, let right. us, you know, throw off everything that hindered, hinders us. And that's not what it says. It says we are surrounded <laughs> right, mm-hmm. we're surrounded yeah. by a cloud mm-hmm. of them, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so, so that's one piece of it. But the other thing too, and this, um, the more I reflected on it, this was actually one of the earliest arguments given to me for the mm-hmm. the the awareness of the saints in heaven. Uh, comes from Luke 15, the lost chapter of the Bible, right? The lost sheep, <laughs> lost coin, lost right. prodigal son. Oh, that's all in that chapter 15. So it says in chapter 15, uh, after they find the sheep. Uh, Jesus says, I tell you in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Now, I could dismiss that and say like, well, yeah, of course, Jesus is in heaven and he rejoices. But then it says this thing, and this brings us back to an early image that Ken used in this episode. When the woman finds the lost coin, Jesus says at the end of this one, he says, in the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So... Let's just say that you're up there um, drinking. Would you say your celestial seasonings tea? I can't remember, Ken. But you're on your your uh, your holy hammock, right? <laughs> and you see works. whatever. And I'm on hammock over, <laughs> right? And uh, I hear this, you know, roaring and rejoicing. We're both startled out of our celestial naps, and uh, I ask you, I'm like, what's going on over there, Ken? And you're like, it's all these angels. They're they're partying. They're celebrating something. I'm not entirely sure. I was like, well, did you ask them? You know, and you could say, well, I did, but they said I'm no. not allowed to know. There's a veil. You can't <laughs> see. There's a veil. <laughs> right? So, like, the people who are in the beatific vision, you're telling me the angels have this, like, super secret and they party all the time and all the, the people are like, I'm not sure why they're, they won't tell us anything. I tried asking once. Michael said, no, nope, can't know. Right? I mean, it's it's preposterous. It's preposterous. Uh, but then that goes into the question of omniscience and omnipresence because only jesus uh as part of the god only god the father the holy spirit only they can truly mm-hmm. know everything omniscience and omnipotence and omnipresence those are characters and qualities of god mm-hmm. right not of any human being even a human right. being who is beatified and in the beatific vision so what do we make of that yeah i'm glad we're going to this one next um it is the logical next question i think and for this question, we, we, we're going to keep doing theology. We're going to add another layer of, of theology to what we've just done. And so for this piece, we need the Bible's temple theology. A temple is a meeting place between heaven and earth, right? Just simple, simple definition. And in the New Testament, Jesus does something interesting with the temple. He relocates it. He relocates the meeting place mm-hmm. between heaven and earth from a building on a hill in Jerusalem to his own resurrected body. And so New Testament writers tell us that the body of Jesus, the new temple, is a temple that is both in heaven and on earth. And so Jesus' resurrected body is, while at once seated Hmm. on the heavenly throne, also present, active, and moving around and about the world, in the church, which the New Testament writers call the body of Christ. And Paul says of the church, the body of Christ, that it 
is the temple of the Holy Spirit made up of living stones. And Jesus said the temple is to be what? My house shall be called a house of what? Prayer prayer for all nations. So from a human perspective, a temple is where people go, commune with God, and pray. So let me get specific then to answer the omnis question with all that as a background. No human being is omniscient, omnipresent, or omnipotent. Rather, human beings, by virtue of relationship with God in Christ, are in one who is all of those things. We are in the one who, by virtue of being with him in his temple. If I said earlier this year, I flew to Idaho, if I I said that to you guys, hey guys, earlier this year, I flew to Idaho, you would not assume that I was saying I could fly. You and boy, assume, are my arms tired. <laughs> I, I flew to Idaho, and boy, are my arms tired. Rather, you would assume that I was in something that flew, and that by virtue of mm-hmm. being in that thing, I was participating in its capacity to fly in some substantive way, even though that wasn't intrinsic to me. And in the same way, by being with Jesus in heaven, the saints are participating in God's capacity to see and to know and to hear. And in fact, this is exactly what the Bible teaches that at the time of our perfection, as it says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, it says, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then face to face, Mm -hmm. now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. This is a language of participation in the capacity of God to know, not my own, but his. And so, uh, you know, finally, in the book of, of Revelation, we have this phrase, then I saw, okay? We've been doing Revelation a lot today. Then I saw is a phrase that's used 15 times in the book of Revelation. Well, how is it possible for John to see all of these heavenly mm. things? The answer is simple. God said to him in Revelation 4, verse 1, come up here and I will show you. So mm. what I would say to all of that, that we're not omniscient, omnipresent, is amen, we're not, but God is, and we're in the one who is, and by virtue of being in him, we participate in who he was, who he is, and what he does. And this is also a, a realm that's that's operating on a different whole concept and understanding of of the passage of time, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, than we are. Some people are like, well, what if, what if you know, me and this other guy are praying at the same time? You know, won't that confuse Saint Francis of Assisi? You know, all right, or 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 whoever it happens to be. But mm-hmm. you know, just to get back to your Idaho plane, you know, you didn't fly there, and boy, your your arms tired. You flew there in a plane. Mm-hmm. I mean, Saint Paul, who's talking about this, also says, not merely I can do all things, right? But I yeah, can true, do all things true. through Christ who strengthens me. Right. Yeah. All, that's all. That's the locus of all of this stuff. Yes, it well, is. you know, I, I think that, um, yeah, this question or this objection is one that sounds very powerful, um, superficially. You know, hey, but come on, you're making the people in heaven as though they're omniscient, as though they can hear like a thousand people talking at once. You're, you know, they don't, you know, you're turning them into God. By the way. Kenny, this temple theology is really rich and it's very deep. And I really, uh, really enjoyed what you had to say. I got to tell you, though, that when you said that Jesus relocated the temple, I, I, I immediately flashed back <laughs> to my dispensationalist past. I thought, man, that is heresy. You start talking about the temple in Jerusalem becoming something like Christ's own body. But anyway, I'm fine with that now. <laughs> the bottom line, I mean, I can put it together like this. Everything you just said, I could put together by saying, 
Well, what will I put it like like this? Besides the fact that everything about the saints in heaven is supernatural and miraculous and beyond conception, besides the fact that Paul even says this, doesn't he, when he says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has it entered into the mind of man. I mean, it is. You think about it. It has never even been conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Um, the simple question, this comes back to me again. Well, how did those 24 elders described in Revelation 5 and 8, how did they know what the saints on earth needed? And how did they know what the saints on earth were praying for? And yet they did. Mm-hmm. And then the passage, Matt, that you brought up, you know, where Jesus says there's more, more joy in heaven over the over one sinner who repents. And I, I think you make a good distinction there. Yeah, he, he specifies as the angels in heaven, right? But that even makes it seem even more ludicrous. The angels in heaven are rejoicing, as you said, and everyone else, you know, we're in the we're just like staring like a cow staring <laughs> at a new at a new gate <laughs> to borrow that lovely image from Martin Luther one time. You know, we're just sort of like zoned out and just enjoying this e- eternal bliss and we know nothing about the uh, the needs of even those we love on earth, or so or that anyway, really, you know, that's God's. To, that's up to God. The the answer yeah, to the to question of about, how do they hear? That's up to God. Yeah, the whole temple Go theology ahead. thing, or that you're less close to Christ in that mm-hmm. state. Yeah, right. It, it's all more, as you were saying, Kenny. Um, it's it's all more. Yeah. But then again, just to bring it all back um, to this question of is this worship? Is what you're doing when you're asking for this help? Is that worship? Mm-hmm. Well, that, that's another objection. They say, well, you know, praying to the saints is a form of worship. And the, the answer is simple, and it's simply this. Let me ask, well, let me ask you, Matt. Are you worshiping your friend when you ask him to pray for you? Well, you, you know, not, it's not true. Not usually. I mean, uh, uh, imagine your wife walks into the room and, at, and asks you if you'll turn on the light for her, and you say, get thee behind me, <laughs> you know, devil, Satan, get thee behind me. You know, you're, you're pretending like you're God or something like that. No. No, you know, we know that this objection is rooted in a basic confusion about what worship is. You know, asking someone to pray for you is not worship. Asking the saints in heaven to pray for you, it's not worship. Asking Mary, our mother in heaven, to pray for us is not worship. And we got into this uh, a little bit in the second ever episode of On the Journey. Uh, We talked a little bit about this, and and I still maintain that part of the confusion among a lot of Protestants on this question is because... For many of them, praise and worship is a musical genre. And so there yeah. is this lack of distinction between those terms of praise and worship. Um, and, you know, intercession mm-hmm. could be over here as well. Prayer, praise, mm-hmm. worship. All their praise and worship songs are essentially prayers, right? So this is, mm-hmm. whereas in Catholicism, you have like clear distinction. Like praise, I can tell you, Ken, that uh, my goodness, that uh, that's a that's a great choice of barber that you have made for yourself i'm praising you and praising (laughs) your barber at the same time am i worshiping either one of you no i'm not right worship involves sacrifice right and there's a there's nobody's nobody's asking you to make a sacrifice to uh teresa of avila right to you know that's just not how it works um right kenny you had something to add i was just gonna say i when i was a pastor for for 20 years i prayed for thousands of people I had people say to me, Pastor Kenny, pray for me. Not once, guys, I promise you this, I swear. Did I ever say to any of those people, why are you asking me to pray for you? Go right to God. I never did that. Mm -hmm. I said, of course Mm -hmm. I'll pray for you. 
that's what the Bible wants me to do. And back to my point, heaven is more. I'm not going to stop praying for people after I go to heaven. Uh, and according to the book of Revelation, I'll be participating, hopefully, in in their prayers. <laughs> All right. But, uh, and we'll get to this uh, this one next, and that is the question of, well, why are you ultimately going to Mary? Why are you going to St. Anthony mm-hmm. for your car keys? Why are you doing all these things? Mm-hmm. Are you afraid that God won't answer you unless you, like, you know, soften him up with uh, with a little poem to St. Anthony? Are you afraid that God's not interested in answering your prayers unless you can, like, sort of yeah. soften him up a little bit? This is This is one, of course, I've heard a lot, and this is one— I I have heard some Catholics speak as though that is the case, and maybe they think that. I've heard some Catholics speak as though, hey, listen, Jesus is tough. You don't want to go to him. <laughs> Mary's a mother. She's tenderhearted. You want to go to her as though Jesus isn't tender, tenderhearted. So there, I've heard some Catholics speak in this way, and uh, so I understand yeah. this objection. And in fact, in Lorraine Bettner's famous book uh, yep. titled Roman Catholicism, which is the classic book against Roman Catholicism, this is what he says, quoting, How dishonoring it is to Christ to teach that he is lacking in pity and compassion for his people, and that he must be persuaded to that end. You know, this kind of feeling that Jesus doesn't really have pity or mercy, and so you got to persuade him. And the best way to persuade him is to go to his mother, you know, and uh, that'll help out. Okay. But... To answer this objection, really all I need to do is ask a question. Do we imply that God is stingy with his mercy? Do we imply that Christ is stingy with his mercy when we ask our brother or sister or friend or anyone on earth to pray for us? Again, it, it just doesn't add up. I liked what you just said, uh, Kenny. You know, ne- Never once did you say, why are you talking to me? I'm a mere man. Go straight to God. Well, yeah. This um this objection kind of falls under the same weight uh, fa- falls by the same you know by the same answer really yeah. yes you could be implying that Jesus is stingy but unless you're implying that every time you ask someone to pray for you then the objection just doesn't hold amen so then with all that and Ken you just alluded to this uh, if if we can have this entire army of saints you know why do we focus so much on Mary she's just one person in the mix. Right. And I guess part of this is answered by the previous episodes in this series. Uh, but how would you mm-hmm. uh, kind of answer that particular question? Because that's usually asked more out of curiosity by this point. Yeah, at this point, I think it would be more more of curiosity. And, and I guess the, the simple answer, though, is Mary is the mother of Christ. She is, according to these, you know, the Council of Ephesus in 431, she is the mother of God in the flesh. And as such, she becomes our mother. She's the mother of the church. Think about Jesus on the cross again, looking down and saying, Mother, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. And so why wouldn't we call upon her especially? Mm -hmm. That's really the only answer. And I don't mind setting it in the context of what we've done here, because what what we've looked at here today is the broader concept of the nature of the church and uh, in heaven and on earth, and the communion of saints in heaven and on earth, and the whole idea of intercession, and does it violate somehow the uh, the sole mediatorship of Christ and all that? And, and, and the answer is no. And so answering it for Mary, it, 
in my mind, is just a specific application of that. In other words, we could go off, I guess, and talk about St. Nicholas and prayers to St. Nicholas or Paul or Peter or anybody else, you know, but Mary is the mother of our Lord. And so it makes sense. And she's our mother, the mother of the church. You have anything to add to that, Kenny, before we conclude or, or I guess you can do it in your conclusion. Yeah. Nothing to add to that per se. I I mean, I think for this episode, guys, my final um, contribution here is to maybe provide a quick summary of what we're actually doing here. Uh, what we're and, and I, I propose three things and I'll, I'll do the first two and Ken, you can do the last one. Um, first, we're okay. looking at scripture, right? We, we've covered a lot of scripture today and we're looking at scripture in a sense, we're showing that we see a very integrated heaven and earth church. There's some ecclesiology mm-hmm. going on in, in what we're doing here. But second, we're doing theology in a particular way, I would say in a Catholic way, in the way that the church has always done theology. And I learned this term shortly after I began my investigation into Catholicism from the work of St. John Henry Newman, who we've talked about before. And a theological tool and a philosophical tool that he created the terminology for it called the illative sense. So think of my sense of smell, my sense of hearing, my sense of touch, taste, etc. That we also as humans have an illative sense. And the illative sense is that voice that says, well, it only follows that. The illative sense happens when someone takes one, two, three, four, five, six things and shows them together and says, if this and if this and if this and if this, well, it only follows that. This. Mm -hmm. And so we have been doing theology, and the church does theology with its illative sense wide awake and and um, and working. And I I wrote down my here's my final my final final thoughts, guys. I wrote down some some illative artifacts here. If there is only one church, if that church is in heaven and earth, if those in heaven and earth are united in a communion of saints, if our communion is in the temple of Jesus' body, if that temple is a house of prayer, if in prayer we Mm -hmm. are called to intercede for one another, if the prayers of the righteous avail much, if those in heaven are featured as praying, well, here's my illative sense, it only follows that those in heaven can and do pray for us, and there's nothing wrong. In fact, it's great, it's wonderful and helpful to say, Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In fact, indeed, beautifully (laughs) said. Okay, we've been looking at Scripture, we've been doing theology, and the final thing is we're we're looking at history as well. But 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 before I hit history, I just want to say, what was I going to say? I'm I'm telling you, like the greatest idea I've ever had in my entire life came into my mind and (laughs) left my mind. It's gone. Um, All right. St. Anthony, pray for him. (laughs) There you go. For his life, he's lost his mind. No, here it is. No, here it is. Something I love is at the beginning of Mass, the beginning of Mass, when we confess together, I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters, I have greatly sinned in my thoughts, you know, through my fault. And then we say what? And I asked the Virgin Mary, I mean, I, I asked the Blessed Mary, ever Virgin, all the angels and saints, and you, my brothers and sisters, to pray for me. Right, Just the it, whole That church. is where the, the church in heaven man. and earth yeah. comes together. Pray for me to the Lord our God. Okay, Amen. we've looked at the Bible quite a bit today. 
We've looked at theology and this wonderful theology of the temple that you brought out, Kenny. And then we're looking at history just very briefly. That is, how do we see this integration of scripture and theology played out in the history of the church? How do we see this conviction that there is a, as you put it, heaven and earth church? How do we see this conviction actually played out in the history of the church, this communion of saints actually being revealed in the history of God's people? And the answer is simply this. We see it in the reality that Christians from the beginning have invoked those who have gone before. This is what Christians have been doing from the earliest times. In fact, in the catacombs of Rome, we find early messages scratched into the walls, messages like, make petition for us. In the catacombs where Christians were buried, crying out, make petition for us. Pray for your sister. Pray for your parents. Help us when you come to the judge. That's an amazing one. Help us when you come to the judge. It's someone probably kneeling before the grave of a family friend or someone that they loved and saying, help me when you come to the judge. Help us. Pray for us. It is simply historical Christianity, Kenny, Matt. It is historical Christianity to believe that we can address those who have gone before us into the presence of God, and we can ask them to pray for us. And I want to conclude just with a quotation here. This is from the great St. Jerome answering the heretic Vigilantius. This is what he wrote. You say in your book that while we live, we are able to pray for each other. But afterwards, when we have died, the prayer of no person for another can be heard. There's your veil again. Quoting now. But if the apostles and martyrs, while still alive in the body, can pray for others, at a time when they ought to be still so solicitous for themselves. <laughs> I mean, if they can pray for others at a time when they, when they should be concerned for themselves. If the apostles and martyrs, while still in the body, can pray for others at a time when they ought to still be so solicitous for themselves, how much more will they do so after their crowns, their victories, and triumphs? Mm -mm. Heaven is more. Amen. Heaven is it's more. more. And and uh, to go back to what you were saying, you know, it is one church. It's not like the the people who are alive go to First Baptist Church and the people who are dead go to Second Baptist Church, right? It's one <laughs> church. And I just want to go back and uh, just read kind of explicitly a verse that Kenny tossed out uh, in his Iliative Litany that really brings it all home. Uh, it's from James chapter five, where James is saying it. it Starting at verse 13, if anybody's having any kind of trouble at all, you should pray. Gather the elders together. Pray for one another. Um, confess your sins to each other. And it then goes on to say, depending on your translation, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous person availeth much. So if that's true, and we all believed it to be true in our congregations, somebody is having trouble, you know which little old lady to call to start the prayer chain. You knew, Amen. right? Amen. And if that's true about her and her prayers, then why would it not be true about the people who are more perfectly united to Christ than any one of us could ever dream of being here on this earth? So. Amen. 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 All right. A lot of ground covered, gents. Mm -hmm. A lot of ground probably still yet to cover. <laughs> it's the, this topic of Mary is is very huge, and a lot of people probably watch these episodes and are like, you keep on saying you're going to talk about Mary, but you talk about 500 <laughs> other things. 
along the way. So, we are at any rate, go back and watch the other episodes. Uh, go to chnetwork.org and you can find all the previous episodes. Check out our YouTube channel and, you know, mash with it. could say mash the subscribe button. Are you supposed to mash it? I'm not sure what you're supposed to do. Something with the button. Uh, also, go to our online community, which is community.chnetwork.org. Join uh, all kinds of people who are at various stages of exploration on these questions and uh, are helping each other out along the way. And then, of course, you can be a supporter of our work by going to chnetwork.org slash donate. We very much appreciate it. Ken, Kenny, another whirlwind yeah. tour of scripture and history in the Magisterium. We'll talk to you next time around. Yes, next week. Bye-bye.